while streams of warm blood pooled under and around her, films of steamy condensation floated above, like what happened when you breathed out into the cold air. But this was no breath. It was her life that seeped out. The back of her head was pressed in a way that fit over the angles of the curbstone. Her blood spilled out in steamy mist, melting icy white crystals and etching a winding path that sloped down toward the iron grate at the cross street. A river of red slipped from her body and wound its way down and into the city sewer. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, scholar, nonfiction author, Duke University professor of English and law turned mystery novelist, Carla F.C. Holloway. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. My introduction this week is brief. You simply must meet Carla F.C. Holloway. Scholar, nonfiction author, Duke University professor of English and professor of law turned mystery novelist. Here she is reading from her book, A Death in Harlem. This book has a lot of voices, which I think has frustrated some people, but there are a lot of voices in my head, Janice. So um, from my perspective, Harlem has the right to have it say, and this is Harlem's voice. Common ground. I'd weathered centuries of shape-shifting. This spring story slipped through a summer, dropped into fall, and having weathered winter became another seasonal ritual. My grounds were used to change. There were groves as pristine as the first morning broken over lush and virgin lands. Meticulously groomed farmlands had their time as well, but eventually they got pressed flat for the presumptive economy of roadways. Cobbled stones displaced them. They had the necessary heft and resilience, but the coming of asphalt poured hot and spread steaming across and into their cracks and ridges, promised to ride without bruises. Horses, generations past field-free days, were left to decorate waysides for tourists or to respond to tugs for mounted uniforms. As if giving ground were not enough, things took to the air. Iron grids sketched like tracery, spiraled above and curved below to support trains that mapped up and then down into Manhattan. But earth was common ground. Walkway dust swept over slabs of concrete sidewalks. All manner of refuse found its way to the streets. Things lost and a few things found and then forgotten inevitably worked their way down, mixed together like pottage and whirled into eddies that spread silent circles beneath the city. They migrated through the waterworks and finally spilled into the rivers. In summers, opened hydrants gushed cool waters over sparkling brown bodies. In winter, detritus lay like sediment in ice suspension until the inevitable meltdown, when everything that was waiting for warmth and sunlight joined a sloggy, unwanted wash. There were early downtown days when autumn meant brilliant mounds of colored horizons, uptown too, until somebody looked around at the people who matched the striations of color and the damp bark and late fall leaves and decided these particular streets didn't need that many trees anyway. And concrete was so much easier to contain than a spreading chestnut. I asked you to read the full page simply because I so love the language. Thank you so much. I I enjoyed writing from these perspectives. You know, this is my first fiction, but I've read a whole lot of it. Mm -hmm. So I think it, in a lot of ways, felt like a voice wanting its out. And maybe that's why there's so many different voices. Um, But the play with words, something that... I respect from our ancestor, Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. as a license, you know, um, it's like, you get to do this because you want to. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I wanted to and took that license, but fully honor her um, 
instruction to listen to your head and listen to the voices that would want out if there weren't somebody sitting on your shoulder telling you a comma belongs here. Yeah, yeah. So often authors say they write the books they need to read. Yeah. What brings you to this book? I think I needed to write it. I'm not so sure it was, you know, because I'm so full as an English professor of the books of our cultural heritage that I think we've done a mighty fine job writing those books we all need to read. So I didn't feel like I was filling any holes both in our canon or in my own imaginary. I think what I was doing was was doing the, I, I kept thinking of it like lace work. I don't know why, because I never could sew a stitch, but like tatting, you know, just tying together edges. There are glimpses in this story. One of my younger colleagues has told me, these are called Easter eggs, Carla. I said, what's an Easter egg? Where I have a glimpse to a Paul Lawrence Dunbar or a glimpse to a James Weldon Johnson or a memory of someone using the word. And that's what I felt the need to do to honor the way they used language. Um, that's such a lovely question because I, I know that the appropriate answer, oh, oh yes, I needed to read this book. But it's more like, oh yes, I needed to practice this craft that I had admired for so long to put my um, knot in this stitchery. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you know, of course, that the impetus for this story, at least, came from classrooms of teaching Nella Larson's passing, where every student for the last 40 some years, well, what happened? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Who did it? You know, I said, nobody, the book was over, you know, page, whatever. The book is closed. I used to hate my fifth grade teacher making us write the ends of stories after the author finished. And it just felt like an assault to me. The story's finished. What do you mean, write the next chapter? Well, here I am, 70 years old, writing the next chapter. So Nella Larson inspired me here because of that word, the policeman passing by the scene of the death in Nella Larson's novel, 1929 novel, Passing, said death by misadventure. And not until I went to law school did I realize that was, it was a real legal term you could use, but all the while before that, misadventure, interesting word. You have pulled a lot of things together into that one thing. I want to go back. And that's because of the layers and the richness and the voices and all of that. But for people who don't know Nella Larson's book, Passing, tell us what it is. Get thee to a library (laughs) first. And it's, you know, sometimes it's called a novella. It's such a slender book. But Nella Larson wrote about um, Irene and Claire, two very good friends who were both light enough to pass. Did I know that in 2020, people still didn't know what passing was? So I'm still, and when I was teaching, still teaching what passing meant. People, Black people have many different hues in our families. You know, we go from very light to very brown skin. And these are all our relatives. Um, And these two women formed a friendship that one of them took a little bit further than she might have, enjoying the pleasures of going to a department store that ordinarily she'd be banned from going to. So Irene and Claire formed a friendship that I think, honestly, was formed because they were both light-skinned Black women and didn't have to explain themselves to their browner-skinned friends who were all members of the Sididi Black Society. That was really important to me. People didn't know we were Sididi. So I wanted to put Sididi in here and put the fur coats and the limousines and all those pictures that Carl Van Vechten took of Harlem. Those were in my head. I said, where do you think we got these limousines? We didn't just borrow them for the photograph. But these folks lived up in Hamilton Heights or Sugar Hill. And I wanted to explore that society because I felt that there was so much literature that was willing 
and an eager feed for people who wanted to know about the um, the unhappier, the grim side of being Black in America. But there were folks who were enjoying themselves mightily during the Jazz Age, the Harlem Renaissance. And I wanted to give some breadth to those folks as well. You know, the, the Jack and Jill clubs, the debutante balls, the cotillions. My mother would not let me be in the cotillion because my mother was a socialist. She wasn't AK. <laughs> socialist. She said it was a Vietnam War was going on and she was not going to argue about how many buttons were going to go on the debutantes, you know, um, gloves. It was either 12 buttons or 20 because you could button those gloves. So I have my gloves. You, have, you were a debutante. Okay. <laughs> All right. Moment. Journalist moment. Janice Adams. But I want to see. Just a full disclosure. But look, Beyonce's um, Blackest King, there's a debutante scene in Blackest King. I want the photo album, you know, the book that I can just linger over the photographs mm. of her last video album. And when I saw the cotillion and debutante ball, <laughs> that's my girl, you know. She is a curator of our culture. Absolutely wonderful way to put that because she is. Everything she meshed into that moment. Although I do have to say, I've had a couple of students over my career that used to write everything they knew in one sentence. Uh -huh. <laughs> and in one way that film, Black is King, is everything you could possibly imagine in one film. But she pulls it off as an editor or the editor or the production company or whatever. And it's fabulous. If this is my shot, I'm going to take it. There you go. And, you know, for Black people, I think that's it. We don't know when it is or when it isn't. The shot. And we've seen how she had been treated in the music awards business. Exactly. Said, I'm gonna make my own business, you know. So in some ways, in writing this book, I wanted to curate a version of culture that's not the grim, hurtful, although there's there's grimness or hurt in here, but there's also a fair bit of humor, and there's also and attention to the society that Nella Larson was certainly a part of, where color mattered. And in her 1929 novel, Passing, a woman falls out of a window, one of the pair of the very light-skinned women. Her best friend is suspect, but the novel ends. Is it death by misadventure? Or did her best friend do it? And if her best friend did it, why would she do it? Let's check the husband out, you know? Let's check the other friends in this Negro welfare society. I went late to law school, and I had that thing, motive, opportunity, in my head, you know? So let's see who had motive, who had opportunity, who had so That's how I used my law school education, writing a novel. <laughs> Carla, I was going to ask you about this law school education in the next segment, but, mm -hmm. but I cannot leave that alone. You leave a career or you take a pause, I paused. On, on a career as, um, and I like, I, I like the pause part because thinking about what you were saying before about the debutantes ball and the, uh, the texture of the people and the range of the people and all of that in Harlem having a whole different way of, of presenting yes. our people. I, I kept thinking about Jesse Jackson's statement, I reserve the right to be human. That's right. That's in the right. midst of all America has planned for us, we reserve the right to be human. Yeah, snatch it back. Yeah. Snatch it back in all its glory, in all its range. So in your range, you take a pause on this career, noted career as a professor, and you decide you're going to go to law school. Why? <laughs> well, you know, it, it was a moment when I was at, I was actually serving as a faculty dean, and there were comments and calls coming to me about, the next step. And I'm thinking, this is a step. You know, you go up, that, well, you know, I just thought I was, I was being a dean. And I will tell you quite 
frankly and and thoughtfully, I took the job as dean right after my son died. Being a dean means somebody gives you a card, tells you what to do from 10 to 8, and then you're off the card. And the next morning, they give you another card. That's all my brain could handle, somebody giving me the instructions. So I never saw myself as an administrator. They tell me I was a good one. I don't remember much of it. Because one of the things that happens with grief, there is a shadow. And I physically felt the cloak of grief. There are people who come to me today, you hired me, I did. And we had that wonderful interview in your office. We talked, <laughs> you know. I remember nothing of it because being a dean saved me from thinking about my students the way I normally give to them, um, my colleagues. I had work to do that would advance Duke's um, ambition. After I got to the point where I could handle myself, that step of, would you like to be a college president? Could I wear jeans? <laughs> you know, you know, like, I'm thinking, you got, you got the wrong person here. Just because I was good at being dean didn't mean that this was my ambition. I liked to think. I liked the freedom. I liked being human. So I took a year, um, two years, and went to law school. I got a master's of legal studies. I never did criminal law because that was just too, too gritty for me. But evidence and criminal procedure, oh, that's fun stuff. You know, if the evidence moves from this person to that person, who touches it in between, that just peaked my imagination. And I didn't want to think about it as an English professor because we tend to tell stories about law, but law is serious. You know, they got, here's the envelope. Don't jump outside of that envelope thinking. And I wanted to learn to think that rigorously. And I'm very glad today I did it because you can sit me down with a law and order episode and I can go, <laughs> go straight through it. When we come back, more with our guest, Carla F.C. Holloway, author of the book, A Death in Harlem. More after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show. My guest, Carla F.C. Holloway, scholar, nonfiction author, Duke University professor of English and professor of law turned mystery novelist reads from her book, A Death in Harlem. Sometimes really bad things happened. The earth held them no differently from an unspent penny or a strawberry ice dropped in wailing despair and a last longing for the sweet, sticky thing melting and then slipping across the curb. Like the night the lady's blood, and truth to tell, a bit of bodily tissue too, trickled into the street and became just another bit of waste in the mix of things fallen through graded gutters. A seasoned wash of spring rains yielded to a forgiving green, fully ready for bound North folks, whose mix of fantasy and desire, fixity and finish would find whatever could not be imagined. With each shimmering promise of new, Harlem held fast to memories of dusk and dawn and every season in between, right there where the stories settled and marked their place. You've mentioned your son, and I know that that is a, a tragic episode that other people have experienced to some degree, but it will never be the same. Let me ask you this. What would you like us to know about your son and remember about him? just that he was loved. And whose words are those? Toni Morrison's from Song of Solomon. <laughs> yeah. um, he was loved. He was um, an extraordinary boy to whom extraordinary things happened and he could not resist the demons. I cannot, you know, as much as I want to join with the mothers of the movement and the the um, families of the young men who are killed by police violence unjustifiably. He was shot and killed trying to escape from prison after a series of unconscionable horror. And I have to live with that. 
but what I learned about myself in that was, good goodness, someone you love so deeply can do that and you can still love him? That told me something about me that I don't think I, I have a daughter that is as easy to love as your favorite fluffy food, you know? She's, and a grandson and a sweetheart of a son-in-law and never a challenge, always a joy. This child, my son was a challenge. He was adopted when she was five. Um, and she was as gracious and generous in bringing him into our family, but he was just too harmed by the years prior and by whatever else other illnesses harm. Mm -hmm. I spent a good deal of time actually thinking with a man who became my friend at Duke, um, the famed writer Reynolds Price, who was a deep thinker. And I remember many a day talking to him about the difference between evil and madness. And he said, finally, Carla, it all just burns itself out. And what you're left with is love. Reynolds is right. Oh. I'm left with love. And I'm so grateful to be left with love, but I cannot mitigate the horror that he executed on the world. It's my hour. My husband and I both decided we were going to stick around and manage our way through this, thank goodness. We've been married 48 years. Um, and our beautiful daughter, and who knew I'd have a grand boy, <laughs> who speaks, he's Puerto Rican and um, African-American, so he speaks both languages, who has brought joy to these years that I didn't think I deserved. Mm. But I think Reynolds would say, love is available if you choose it. Now, Reynolds faced his own serious challenges. Oh Yes. So it sounds like a man who was well-seasoned. He was. That's such a beautiful word. Exactly that. Remember, in one of his books, also in one of our conversations, he said he would ask God, is, you know, why? And God would say to him, because God spoke to Reynolds Price, I mean, why not? Um, he would say, more. There will be more pain. There will be more. He never gave him ease. He said, there will be more. And so I thought if there's anybody to talk to about this, and for some reason, he was heart open to this part of me. Um, first time I met him, he told me he thought I was Sididi. And I said, you're the only white man I know who knows the word Sididi. Because I was scared of him. You know, a whole, a whole lot of things. <laughs> but when he told me that, I said, you think I'm Sididi? <laughs> I think you're scary. So. We used to, he used to make me drink brown liquor. <laughs> brown liquor? What is that? Uh, you know, like what? It's whiskey or scotch when I would go to his house some evenings. Um, his <laughs> would pour two fingers. That's the only place in the world I ever drank brown liquor because I want, I wanted to be cool enough for Reynolds Price. <laughs> yeah. So if he was going to serve me brown liquor and soup, that's what I was going to do. He was a good man. And he had been seasoned. And um, the pain he endured was mighty. But he had a heart <laughs> wide open. I have to tell you one story. Um, at one point, I invited him to my book club of 30 years, um, 20 Black women. We read his book. I forget which, which of his biographies it was. And we put him through the, why didn't you go to a Martin Luther King march? Why didn't you, you know, we just put, and he just said, I'm just, I'm just one of y'all. No, you're not Reynolds, you're white. <laughs> so he was, he just enjoyed being what our book club is called Friday Night Woman, a Friday Night Woman. I said, well, you can be an honorary Friday Night Woman because you, you endured the fire for us. Yeah. He was a good man. He was a good man. I never met him. But I'd spoken to him, but I'd never you met him. You know that voice? Remember that voice? You'd listen to anything that man had to say. He used to tell me stories about being there when Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton fell in love on the set of Cleopatra. He was in Italy when that happened. Wow. He had some stories, and one day I might tell some of them. <laughs> Will it be with or without brown liquor? <laughs> 
think we have to have some brown liquor. <laughs> Two fingers. <laughs> Two fingers. <laughs> Two fingers. Look, from some of these experiences that you've been talking about, there were two books that I want to ask you about. Legal Fictions, okay. Constitutional Law, Composing Literature, and we talked about your son, but I'd love for you to speak more about passing on African-American morning stories. So clearly your life is informing your work. It, it absolutely is. Thank you for noticing that. In a way, legal fictions was my proof that I went to law school. <laughs> I had to get something out of it. But it did you know, really intrigued me this question of how, if you're not dealing with the law in African-American literature in some kind of way, um, you're not dealing with American history. You're not dealing with American culture because we are all bound up in law. You know, we are mulatto or not by law. Kamala Harris is um, a birthright citizen or not by law. So we will, we will invent our fictions by the way law composes itself. And I was fascinated with the, um, with the doctrines of law coming so close to black life. And yet that, in, in my perspective, that dimension of our literature. I don't want to do sociology. I'm like Toni Morrison. We don't, you know, sociologists do sociology. But I wanted us to see how our imaginations are shaped by how the law has defined us. Mm -hmm. And that's what legal fictions was about. Passed on, I wrote, I started writing. And literally, Janice, um, I was in, this was going to be my research book, at one time, I had in mind a coffee table book where you just turn for the next picture because I went to almost every grave site I could find, including once I found out that I could get a research trip to um, the south of France where Josephine Baker was buried. Oh, wow. You just got to go take the picture. You know, that's what I was doing. I did. I got, and right next to her grave site, there's the, a very tiny plaque for a child who did not make it. Um, and few people know about that. But I knew enough French to correspond with the cemetery taker. She said none of those 17 children she adopted ever came to visit her grave. Really? And I said, no. Now, there's a story in that. Now, I didn't have good enough French to keep going with that. But that, that was something really notable for me. But when I was writing that book in an organized way, I was on the chapter, the deaths of children, you know, from Addie Mae Collins and Cynthia Wesley, um, Emmett Till. You're talking, at Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, you're talking about the four little girls of Burma. The girls. And, um, yeah, and these were my era. And Emmett Till, uh, this was my era. And my, you know, I'm a civil rights child. And I very deliberately, Mamie Till Mobley was still alive when this book came out. And I did not, you know, she had the right to use whatever picture she wanted of her child. Um, and she did use the picture. So as she said, the world would see what, would, what had happened to her child. I used a smiling, lovely faced boy um, in Passed On just to honor who he also was. For the audience, we're talking about Emmett Till, the boy who was murdered in 1955, lynched in 1955. And I think that word is important because we're talking about a 14-year-old boy. Um, so that you really understand what America is and has been when you think of a child of that age who was lynched and then there is a mock trial in which the people who do it are exonerated as quickly as possible. Right. And um, a reporter, William Bradford Huey, I didn't oh my goodness, yes. remember his name, does an article on him, on what happened for Look, and he tells the men who murdered em Emmett Till that they will only get the money if they absolutely tell the truth. 
And if they don't tell the truth, the money will not come. Openly admit to having done this hideous, bestial thing. And what, it took two hours for the jury to convict? Yeah, for, not to convict them, yeah. Exonerate. Exonerate. I don't even know if they, they probably had lunch during those two You know, I think you're absolutely right. I think they did. You know, but the memorial to him becomes, in spite of this nonsensical conversation that we get about Rosa Parks, the memorial to him is the modern civil rights movement. She did not say that her feet was, were tired. What she what, you know, what, what, what is up with that kind of, you know, and that's why, you know, just to jump back to legal fictions, which- Let me just, so that the audience will know what she said was, mm-hmm. I thought of Emmett yes. and I could not give in. That's what she said. So- And that's who she was. Exactly. And we had to fictionalize her into some um, doting grandparent-like figure who had not been working in the civil rights movement all along. All along studying uh, how to be a not strategic yeah, um, and make her palatable. How to be in the movement. Girl, take anything away from him at all, but exactly. part of the group that helped take this 26-year-old recent gra- graduate and help mold him into the man he becomes right that's who um rosa parks was not this and you know i want her standing up in statuary hall you know i want her standing up putting her hand up against the bus my bus yeah um because there is a narrative we try and create around black death and dying that is palatable but when i was writing um, passed on as you asked. I was in that chapter because I knew I had to write about children. Because one of the things that my research was showing me was this phrase excess death or excess mortality, which means we always predict a certain amount of you know people in their 60s will die, some babies will die, but black people always had excess death, more than was predicted by statistical tables. So I had to deal with that. And what in the heck made me think I was going to be able to deal with it as a scholar. In the middle of that, my son dies, um, is shot. And I'm thinking, well, did you think you were special? You know, did you think you were not one of these African-Americans you were writing about? And for the first time in my life, I could neither write nor read. Um, It took me maybe two, three years. I stopped in the middle of that chapter. Of course, I had family responsibilities. I had to save my daughter from and and allow her to be who she is, which is a particle physicist, which I had no idea what that means, but it sounds just lovely. (laughs) Um, Bioethicist does not know what a particle physicist is. You know, I, I call it like the God particle. And then she just goes off. She said, no, this is science, mother. This is not creative imagination. And I think she did the science thing so she could say, line here, mother over here, daughter over there. But I wanted to make sure that her future was secure. Mm -hmm. I had to make sure we were all, would all be all right, our whole family. Um, And then I had to process But the thing that gives me most comfort, reading and writing, my mind wouldn't handle. I felt that loss in so many spirit ways. I can understand you saying you could not write, but how, for you not to be able to read. I could read a schedule. It's something that, something that you want to fall into when, you know, when we read, we just give ourselves into, into the book. You know, if you're going to have my sister, who's an MD says, people all, everybody has a navel. I said, not Toni Morrison's character, um, pilot. She didn't have a name. She said, that's it. I'm not reading that the woman, but I'm ready to pilot didn't have any. Okay. She didn't have a navel, you know? So that kind of giving oneself over to reading, falling into a book, staying there, being 
give me being kept by it. You know, um, I couldn't do that kind of reading. And that was a loss I noticed. But when I came back to it, what I came back to was writing Passed On. And I thought that my son deserved the book. Um, the pastor who was actually earlier, my PhD student who is now Professor Grande at Rutgers University, did the funeral sermon for him. And I included that in the book because it has a line from Isaiah, I think it is, don't lay down your heart. And I know he was talking to me. He was preaching to the whole church. He was Baptist, my church was Presbyterian. I told him, gotta, gotta shorten it a little bit. But he preached my son's funeral sermon and later on married my daughter. So how lovely. Things come round. Um, I am grateful for the spirits that have been in my life and those who are inhabiting my imagination now is just it's just a 70-year-old delight, you know, imaginary people. My can I say something about my next book? Absolutely, but you're gonna hold it till we come okay. back. I will, I will. Suspense. <laughs> when we come back, more with our guest. Carla Holloway. She's the author of A Death in Harlem. More after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show, speaking with scholar, nonfiction author, Duke University professor of English and professor of law turned mystery novelist, Carla F.C. Holloway. I've had the opportunity to learn about this business of publishing which for me is as scary as I'll get out. Um, and to see what happens in the publishing world when books don't go right or don't go fine. I decided at some point, I know a university press. I'm familiar with that process. I trust them. My social security is taking you know, good care of me so far. Um, and Working with a university press has been an absolute joy. Northwestern University Press reached out to me to ask me to write a blurb. They were rewrite, reissuing and have reissued some Harlem Renaissance novels. Oh. And here's me. I said, oh, y'all do fiction? <laughs> I, I Will you read this for me? And they were so generous and so um, helpful and not a part of that rat race world. And plus my um, college mate, um, different generations, Nikki Finney had just won the National Book yes. Circle Award and we're both Talladega graduates. And we both published through Triquarterly at Northwestern. So I felt a kinship there. And so when it came to that next novel that had always been in my head after, after I got rid of that question about who done it, because mm -hmm. um, a Death in Harlem does answer the question. All you students of mine over 40 years who asked me, well, who done it? It's in here. <laughs> yeah. um, but then I was, then actually I was freed from Nella Larson and I could write my own Harlem Renaissance story. Mm -hmm. And I've always been a literary historical novel person. So I think you might be the first to see this because I just got it a half hour ago. Ooh. Oh my goodness, gone missing in Harlem with a baby carriage. Now, oh, now remember when the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped? Huh? And when everybody went crazy about the Lindbergh baby that got kidnapped? Yes. Well, come to Noah, a baby got kidnapped in Harlem and nobody paid attention. So Harlem's first colored policeman is on the case. Is on the case. And <laughs> does he solve the crime? Well, then Caney Thomas, he's a miracle worker. He figures it out. <laughs> he, I don't know where mystery came to me. Um, maybe it's like that last question on your exam, who did it? But it's another mystery. It's set in Harlem of the 20s and 30s. The Lindbergh baby enters the story and the people in the community say, what about our baby? We got one that gone missing. Who's going to take care of that? Is is Hoover going to send the FBI down to Harlem? So it deals more with Harlem streets than Harlem Hamilton Heights. 
But Sugar Hill crowd is up in there too because they're having a debutante ball and they don't want to be disturbed. <laughs> so, you know, I decided I was going to do something that I don't usually do. I wanted to ask you a group of questions about your achievements for you to simply fill in the blanks. Okay. So, when I write I... I'm in another place and nobody better bother me because I don't notice anything else but the writing. What makes me a scholar is... I always question whether, are you sure, sweetheart? You know, in, in the Tony K. Bambara voice, where she writes, are you sure, sweetheart, that you want to be well? When I'm reading scholarly literature, I'm kind of quizzical. And what makes me a mystery novelist, which you definitely are now with your second book coming out? Oh, some mystery becomes the proud, but to be wholly taciturn in your reserve is not allowed. Robert Frost. <laughs> um, I like being a little bit weird. <laughs> I, I love that. You know, um, the people I write for are... Um, Frankly, book clubs. I have a group of about 20 women that we've been hanging out and hanging in there since I moved to North Carolina in 1986. And the guys were all watching television and we were discussing Mary by Mary Mebbin. And we decided to keep meeting about books. And they sustain me and they give me joy. And I wrote, I dedicate uh, Death in Harlem to them because if this didn't pass their muster, which means they had to have a good sex scene, they had to have some mystery, and they had to have at least three answers as to who did it. If it didn't pass their muster, it wasn't worth publishing. All right. Like my book club. The people I don't care to write for are... Snobby. Who have a preconceived idea about what it means to be Black in America. I want them to be open to our complexity, as you said, to our humanness. So one of the reasons I'm writing such characters that come from the, you know, the mean streets to the glittery streets is I want people, people to be open to our complexity. What the word polarizing means to me is polarization denies complexity. It says it's this or it's that. One of the things I think a death in Harlem does, and no, it's not, is <laughs> some everything and everybody. Mm -hmm. And I want to be able to claim that, what you said so beautifully before. I want to be able to claim all dimensions of our humanness. In those dimensions, I want to talk to you about how you decided to deal with the issue around the Duke Lacrosse team. For people who don't know about it, and there may be some, the Duke lacrosse team was accused of having raped a Black woman. There are more issues around it. Some say they were wrongfully accused. Some say that question is still out. Mm -hmm. um, but you ended up in the crosshairs. You say the stand that you took on that. Well, my daughter always tells me that I have an outsized sense and in some sense, one that is not helpful to me of things that are right and wrong. And I think I agree with her. I'm, I have judgments like anyone else. I saw clearly the racial dynamics of this when we had a campus that was willing to see this, oh, just a group of people partying and the accusations of a girl nothing um, outside of a courtroom is without its complications. Um, and I understood that life brings its complications. So it was never, and it is not today, in my judgment, a simply resolved matter. As a matter of fact, it never went to a courtroom. So there is no final disposition on this. You're always innocent until everybody in the world is innocent until declared guilty. But that's a sometimes thing. Historically, we were talking about Emmett Till. Lynching, right. Lynching. And so people always, you know, the, the oddity to me was that um, people would accuse me of 
forming a judgment when I never formed a judgment. I just said there are questions as if that was not within my rights, as if we didn't do that with O.J. Simpson. I was on a campus understanding how the racial dynamics of campuses work, understanding how um, alcohol works on bodies. People who've been drinking since 10 in the morning are going to be different at 10 p.m. than they were at 10 a.m. So I think that my outside sense of justice meant that there was a community that was likely, because of our history, to be disparaged in this moment. And if I had any standing in anybody's community, I was going to make that known. I said to my students, you all have to think about how you will accept or not accept friends who do or do not do something wrong. I can't tell you how to behave to your friends, but you have to have a value that stays with you, that clarifies the situation, at least for you. And, you know, Black students on Duke's campus were horribly verbally abused during this moment. And another professor and I spoke up because we were speaking for those students who were, people were ready to push to the side. I'm not gonna let anybody be pushed to the side. Um, I was grown, you know, I had tenure, and I didn't have the kind of ambition, frankly, that some of my colleagues did. If I say this, I might not get this job. And isn't that telling? You know, you will either stand for what you believe or fall for anything. I was standing for character, love, and integrity. And I was willing to listen. In preparing for this interview, I read about- You went there, didn't you, Janet? <laughs> Thank you for giving me the chance to speak on that. I don't know any more than anybody who wasn't in the room knows. What I do know is that I have written about this phenomenon of what happens when a black person makes an accusation against a white person. Yeah. And I do know yeah. that in this country, there have been laws against yeah. black people saying anything that a white person did not also certify and that you would be in deep trouble if you spoke up in your own defense against an actual known attack on you by a white person. And yes, knowing this history, how can we talk about events in America that have racial components without knowing what you just said is going to be the guide, the determination, and the prognostication of what's going to happen? Pretending like this is new every time. Yes. I really appreciated what you had done because I said, someone has to at least ask the question. Do not just assume. We yeah. cannot just assume that it is the way we're being told. Some people will say, well, wait for the DNA. We know that the Central Park jogger camp, there, all there. those boys were cleared by DNA. And, and then what did it mean? Then we can decide DNA doesn't mean it. Gosh darn thing, can't we? It was the one case that we absolutely know of where DNA had exonerated everybody and they went ahead with the prosecution and convicted those boys and destroyed For me, it gives me company. We are each other's company. Our sisterhood is not just because we are Black women of a shared generation but a shared experience in America. We can tell you people how it's going to just listen. We can tell you how this is going to come out, you know, or what nuances they're going to be or what to be careful of. But our voices have to be trusted and they never are individually. And so having the confirmation of your work and your voice, it's a gift that I did not anticipate today, but will give me heart that I need at this moment. Mm -hmm. I wish I could return it to you, but just to say, you know, to lift a sister is to lift yourself. So let's both feel. <laughs> Buoyant.
then. Boy, okay. yes, yes. Carla, in these last moments, I'm just seeing this writer, scholar, person with a serious legal mind, someone who's talking about ethics. When you bring it all together, how do you say to yourself, this is the track I'm on, this is the track I have decided to follow going forward. This is who I want to be. Well, actually, Janice, I think you said it at the beginning. It's the search for the human. And I don't think that that means something as physical as it means metaphysical. There's always that search for the spark of what is it that my father used to tell me, a wonderful, wonderful man. You can't just figure out one thing to work on, can you? But I see the threads that bind us one to another, that bind an issue of medical ethics to an issue of death and dying, to an issue of, um, right now I've just been a signatory on a clinical trial. The sense of the human is a spark of a divine. And because I am not a traditionally religious person, I go and look of that in search of that divine. I don't think I'm very close ever, um, but I do understand survival and resilience and blessing. My thanks to Carla F.C. Holloway and to you for joining us on The Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast, links to her book and more, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved.